Welcome to the Leadership Pulse Healthcare Culture's New Heartbeat. I'm your host, Becky Wolf, and I am excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Omer Awan. Uh, he is the professor of radiology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, where he serves as the Associate Vice Chair of Education in the Department of Radiology. He is also a public health contributor for Forbes.com and publishes weekly timely articles on healthcare. He has a YouTube channel entitled MedEd Page that highlights videos on public health and medical education, seeking to simplify complex topics. His career goals, career goals have been to provide innovative teaching tools for learners and the public in a way that resonates with learning. Dr. Juan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Becky, uh, for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I just want to say, I, I love the content that you put out there on leadership. I, I learned from the stuff that you put out there on LinkedIn. So really, really thrilled to be here and I'm super excited. Ah, well, thank you. Likewise, I, you know, found you with awesome articles that you post on Forbes. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like the, the way you're educating the public is incredible. So I appreciate all that you're doing in the healthcare space. So lead in question that I ask everybody is, um, if what is one thing you want everyone in healthcare to know about leadership culture or just medicine in general? Like what's the thing you would shout from the rooftops for everyone to hear? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a big question. Let's just start with leadership. And I think, you know, leadership is hard it's not easy and you know there are some natural leaders out there you know definitely there are and there are people that can kind of just lead on the fly but for the majority of us it takes work and you know not all physicians or nurses or pas are born great leaders it takes work and it takes training and that's something that i sort of learned as i you know took on some of these roles as you know like one of the program directors for the residency in radiology now being you know an associate vice chair of education uh it takes a lot of skill and I, it's funny because i just enrolled in this university of maryland baltimore faculty leadership uh forum it's like a year-long course and it just trains us on how to be good leaders and i'm amazed at how much i don't know you know even though i'm in a leadership position like i'm just constantly learning about things in leadership that i didn't even consider so you know things like you know ex having an executive presence how to lead through the lens of dei diversity equity inclusion how to interact with the media you know all these topics you know that we don't know and we don't learn formally in you know in college or medical school you know some of us learn it on the fly but there's so much there's so much to learn about leadership and i think uh that's something that's not well known you know even in healthcare like you know people just think that oh he's a ceo or he's the the chairman of a department he must be a great leader that's not necessarily true and we don't get taught these important skills in leadership uh to become a good and effective leader so i think it's very helpful to actually get formal training in leadership and that's why i think you know some of the things that the skills that you put out there on on social media and linkedin about you know how to you know conflict management how to deal with people how to uh have your message resonate with others you know all those things are things that you can absolutely learn but it certainly takes time and those who get formal training in it often do better that's what i've sort of learned yeah no that's 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 great advice i love it of course because i love leadership and i love culture and i think that there are drastic changes that need to take place in medicine uh, and i love what you highlighted and i think that's true for any industry honestly that we get promoted into leadership positions because we're good at our job not necessarily that we know how to lead people so it is an upskill when you get into those positions um, so tell me about education so the thing i love about the podcast is that i get to really hone in on the person i get to interview and what 
they're passionate about. And I know for you, you're passionate about education. So what was your journey like going back into education space after fellowship? Oh, yeah. I love to teach, Becky. I mean, education is my thing. I absolutely love teaching, love inspiring, you know, medical students, residents, fellows, uh, all the people that I interact with. And, you know, teaching for me, part of it was just something that I have naturally wanted to do since I was a kid. You know, when I was even going back to elementary school, I was like, oh, I went kindergarten, first grade. Wow, it's so cool. Like, I love my kindergarten teacher. I think we all have that, you know, uh, feeling, you know, when we're in the moment, but, you know, that also persisted for me, you know, going on, you know, when I went to middle school, high school, I went into college, uh, you know, teaching and, you know, looking up to the teachers that I wanted to emulate has always been something that's been a part of me. And I always wanted to incorporate education in some way in my career, you know, whether I became a formal teacher or I did something else. And actually being a physician was a great way to be, be a teacher. And I think a lot of people don't think think of physicians as teachers, but that's exactly what they are. And especially if someone who goes into the academics like I did, I'm, I'm, you know, at University of Maryland, where I not only do I do clinical work by reading, you know, x-rays, MRIs, CTs, and things like that, but I'm actually actively teaching. So I teach medical students, I teach part of the introduction to radiology course at the University of Maryland, I teach residents on a daily basis on how to you know, read, you know, different imaging modalities in the reading room, teach fellows, mentor them. You know, this is where I think you make the most impact, I think, personally, you know, when you're teaching because you're giving back to people. You know, if I can teach a resident how to interpret uh, x-ray or a CT scan, then they're going to go and interpret this for 30 some years, impact thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients, and they're going to do good for society. You know, just that one resident. And then if you amplify that by, you know, the hundreds and the thousands of residents and the students that you've touched throughout your career, you can see the global impact that you're having in education. That, that's the beauty of education. That's literally the beauty that you're just your impact is never known how much you're impacting. So I think uh, it's just it's a pleasure to do it. It's a joy to see how the growth of a student, you know, from day one to the end of the year, the end of the four years in case of radiology residency or four years in the case of medical school. Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable what they learn. It's unbelievable what they take with them. It's unbelievable how much they can impact society. And, you know, you realize, you know, when you teach, it's, it's not, it's not even about you. It's about them. It's about, you know, giving to them and giving them the tools that they need to succeed. And ultimately, that's what makes you happy. You know what I mean? Like no one is going to, you know, when you go and, you know, you're on your, you know, I hate to be, you know, so. Uh, uh, morbid, maybe. Morbid, exactly. <laughs> morbid about this. But uh, that's a great word, Becky. But, you know, if you're on your death, then no one's going to care, you know, how much money you made or, you know, oh, you bought this house or you had this car. But, you know, it's all about, you know, what you did for other people and what you did mm -hmm. to help and better the rest of society. And I think that's that's really what lies the beauty in education and teaching. And that's why I do it. I love that. It's just so holistic because you get to start when they're like just getting to the radiology section of things and you really get to hone in on their personality and helping them. And honestly, I, I think your perspective is very interesting, though, because you knew early on. So even in elementary school that you wanted to be a teacher, although you took the path of medicine, but you were able to merge all of that into things you're passionate about. So education space and then along with practicing medicine. Um, when did you I'm just curious, this is like a side question here, but when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? I kind of also knew, so my father is a doctor. So my father's okay. a physician. I saw him growing up, you know, I saw he was a pulmonologist. He still practices to this day. I saw the impact that he had. I saw, 
you know, the level of love and, you know, respect that a lot of his patients had for him. You know, even when we'd go to like, you know, outings, you know, if I would, you know, if I was at Sunday school, you know, I, there'd be random people coming up to my father and like asking him for questions or asking for advice. And I was like, wow, like he must be a cool person or like someone that people trust, you know, because we were always asking him these questions. And, you know, I, it, it resonates with you at times. Even as a kid, you look at that and you're like, wow, okay, this is someone that's actually making a difference. They're doing something positive for society. So I think, you know, just seeing that and having that role model um, in front of me on a daily basis, I think really did shape me and really did uh, impact me in wanting to pursue medicine, you know, at a really early age, you know, I, I don't know definitely exactly when I wanted to become a doctor, but, you know, I think I had determined early on, you know, probably in college that, you know, maybe this is something that I, I want to pursue. So, um, which is funny because I, I didn't major in like a, I majored in religion and philosophy in college. So it's, I didn't do like a traditional pre-med route where people major in like, you know, bio, biology or chemistry or physics. So I was open, you know, even in college, I kept an open mind. Uh, I did what I loved, which is learning about people, learning about faiths and, you know, traditional culture. But, you know, I was always kind of moved towards medicine just because my father was a physician. So I, I kind of saw his impact and that's kind of why I, you know, mm-hmm. pursued it at that time. Yeah, that's really interesting. That is not like a typical first major at all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there are very few people that, you know, major in, I guess, religion and become physicians. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's an interesting path, though, because you're just following things that you were interested in and it led you to this, which you're incredibly passionate about. So tell me how you got involved with Forbes. Yeah. Yeah. So also just like education. I see Forbes as a way of promoting education. That's literally why I see it. So everything really for me comes to education. And I think, you know, I'm passionate about public health, passionate about telling, you know, public health stories in a way that resonates with people in a way that will make them think differently about a topic. So, you know, how can we talk about obesity in a way that will motivate people to change? How can we talk about, uh, you know, donations, you know, uh, you know, uh, organ donations in a way that will promote health equity, you know, doing those type of things, you know, and having a platform like Forbes where people around the world will read it, you know, this is just a way to promote global education. You know, that's really why I do that. And, you know, I got lucky, to be honest with you. I mean, if you ask me, like, how I got my spot on Forbes, it's not nothing that I planned or anything. You know, I was during the pandemic, I was writing, you know, freelance articles op-eds like on COVID for, you know, some of the magazines like the Baltimore Sun, which is like a major news outlet for the city of Baltimore, the Baltimore Banner. I started writing about, you know, some criminal justice reform stuff for the Baltimore Banner. And then, you know, people started to notice some of the things I was writing. So actually a Forbes writer or someone on the Forbes staff noticed my articles and they reached out to me and were like, hey, like, you know, would you be interested in writing for Forbes? And I was like, I don't do like a double thing. I was like, did I read that correctly? You know what I mean? Like, uh, so... I was like, absolutely. I would love to do this. You know what I mean? This is like a dream of mine, you know, because I've always won. I love writing, too. You know, just kind of why I majored in religion and philosophy. I've always had this humanitarian uh, liberal arts aspect to my education as well. I absolutely love to write. So it was a way for me just to promote education, you know, doing that in different innovative ways. And one in some ways it's through the Forbes articles. In other ways, it's through, you know, my YouTube channel, MedEd page, where I like to make videos that are easy to understand about, you know, big topics like diabetes or, um, you know, healthcare reform or exercise, you know, these type of things. And by the way, everyone should subscribe to my Met and Page channel in case you haven't, please check it out. They should. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate that very much. Um, but, you know, I'm just trying to find innovative ways to, to teach, to teach the public about uh, issues that really matter. 
That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I think it's needed because we need to help people understand more complex issues uh, and just have education and sources and resources to go to. But um, so I want to bring this up to you. So education for physicians, where do you see it going or what changes have you seen already incrementally being made? Yeah. So I think there are a lot of changes that are happening and a lot of changes that will eventually occur. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at medical education from like a curriculum standpoint, like in medical school. So, you know, it has already changed dramatically. I mean, you know, when I went to medical school, I went to George Washington University in DC and, you know, you, you're the traditionally the first two years are, you know, you're learning the theory, you're learning the pathophysiology, which means you're learning about the diseases, you know, why they occur, the anatomy. And then your second two years, the third and fourth year are more practical where you're hands-on, you're in the hospital, you become an apprentice to many of the physicians. You go ahead and take patients under the supervision of other resident doctors and attending doctors. So, you know, that's sort of the model. That's where the model's been for medical education. But, you know, I think what's changed is really developing innovative methods and incorporating them in the curriculum. So a lot of medical schools are now, you know, have a curriculum where they've changed it so it becomes more system based, number one. So, you know, instead of teaching all these different subjects like anatomy, physiology, pathology, pharmacology, why don't we group it into organ systems? Like, let's just take the cardiovascular system and teach everything about the cardiovascular system in a certain block. So everything about anatomy, physiology, pathology, pharmacology, as it relates to the heart. And then we move on to something else like the lung. So I think that has also had an impact on, you know, many medical schools throughout the country. Also, there have been a move towards adult developing and adopting innovative methods. Like what I mean by that is like flipped classrooms. Like when I went to medical school, there was no such thing as like the flipped classroom, right? And now, you know, people are engaging in this because they realize that there needs to be more engagement in the classroom. And we can do that by offering students ways to, you know, review content beforehand, come in, have a more intriguing, engaging session during classroom. Perhaps this will lead to or lead to increased retention of learning, you know, as it, as it occurs in the classroom. So, um, and these are just some examples, you know, I mean, they're, you know, now virtual reality, augmented reality, simulation, all of these things are, you know, really coming to the forefront for medical education. They're being adopted, they're being championed by people and they're being well-received by students. And I think this is the future. And then you combine that with AI, artificial intelligence and what AI can potentially do for education. How will it uh, lead to, what's called precision learning, which is more, you know, individual focused learning. How can we uh, cater education to meet people's individual needs? Because I may be at one level, Becky, you may be at another level, but how can we uh, sort of make the curriculum tailored to your needs versus my needs, but we both end up, you know, as competent, you know, physicians. So I think that's really the beauty of what AI can do and how it can revolutionize you know, not, not just, you know, medical education, but education in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And, you know, AI is a huge topic and I know, you know, quite a bit about this too. Uh, are there any concerns as far as, you know, this is a kind of a generalized question. Let's make it a little more focused as far as education, but are there concerns with AI in medical education? Absolutely. There's, there's many concerns <laughs> for AI. There's, you know, we're all excited about AI, you know, don't get me wrong. I think AI has the potential to revolutionize medicine. Uh, it's going to do a lot of good. I mean, you go on chat GPT and, you know, you can literally, I could probably type out responses to all your questions on chat GPT that you're asking me right now, Becky, and 
85 percent will probably be really reasonable maybe it's not even better than what i'm telling you right now you know quite frankly right but you know but what about that other 15 percent, right or what about you know you know things that aren't going to go right and that's the problem with, with with ai without physician oversight and i think that's the you know there's this opportunity for fabrication or having erroneous answers and that's never acceptable especially in medicine especially in like a field as high stake as medicine that's what people don't understand they'd say oh well everyone's quick to assume that ai is going to just replace doctors or replace radiologists at least because we're the most technologically relevant field i guess in medicine but no, like if, if there's a bad response, then who's responsible for that error? You know what I mean? Like this could be your mother, Becky. You know, do you want your mother to have uh, a bad treatment because an AI system recommended that? That's how can that be acceptable? Right. So we have to have physician oversight at all times, you know, when we're dealing with AI, because there's always a potential for an erroneous uh, outcome, an erroneous response from like a chat bot um, or all those type of things. So I think, you know, it has a lot of promise, but there are many problems. And that's, I'm just scratching the surface there. I could, we could talk an hour about the problems with AI, but I think, you know, I just want to give, you know, people a perspective on, you know, why there's also issues with AI as well. Yeah. Yeah. We might have to have you come back and talk more about AI. Cause I know there's a lot we can dive into as far as that topic, just in particular, and there's so much fear behind it. Um, so I think we'll have to talk about you coming back on again to talk about that. Yeah, but, yeah. The honor um, to you. Yeah. So I want to go back to the, the leadership course that you're taking through the University of Maryland. So what are you learning about yourself? I'm just, I'm learning, Becky. Like, I'm just learning so much about leadership. And, you know, I think one of the things that really resonated with me, Becky, was, you know, we often talk about, you know, for example, like some of us are better communicators, other ones are better at managing others, others are better at fulfilling tasks. And we often, all of us often focus on our weaknesses, like, oh, what can we do better? Because we, this is how we get trained, right? We get trained, you know, since we're kids, like, okay, well, what can you do better to get a better grade in school? Or what can you do better next time so you can, uh, you know, ace this exam? Or what can you do better so you can get promoted to your next job? So we're always like focused on, you know, the, the, our weaknesses, improving them, but what about our strengths? You know, like we should be focused on our strengths. And that's, that's, one, that's one of the major things that resonate with me. As leaders, it's actually more impactful to hone in and strengthen your strengths than improve your weaknesses. That may sound kind of weird to, to say, but that's actually true in leadership. Like the, the, the leaders that are most effective and the leaders that are, you know, most influential are the ones that develop their strengths not necessarily improve their weaknesses. And I think that was something that was like mind blowing to me because I had never saw it in that light, but it's absolutely so true. If I'm, if in general, if I'm a person that's a good communicator or, or charismatic, then work on that. You know what I mean? Make yourself even more charismatic, make yourself an even more effective communicator as opposed to, you know, working on something that you're already bad at, you know, because the chances are, you know, you're, you're going to improve yourself a little bit, but you know, if you're already good at something and you can take yourself to another level, that will just exponentially, you know, allow your impact and your influence to be that much greater. So that was something that I learned about myself. I, I really did like a, you know, introspective review of myself, my strengths, my weaknesses. And I was like, you know what, maybe I should stop thinking about all the bad things or all the bad traits that I have and focus on what I'm doing right and harness that and, 
make that even better. I think that for yeah. me, that was like literally eye-opening. Maybe you, you probably already know that, Becky, but for me, like I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, you know? No, my awakening came in 2018 with that, honestly. That was like my first introduction into leadership training and understanding where, where my strengths are, what I'm good at, and recognizing that if I'm trying to work on the things I'm not good at, I feel burnt out. I feel like I'm not giving my best and I can't make the impact, just like you said. Um, so what did you notice? Are you more of the communicator or what type are you out of uh, the ones you mentioned? Yeah, I think I think I am. I think, you know, mm -hmm. for me, it's I love speaking. I love mm -hmm. public speaking. People are scared of public speaking, but I absolutely love to speak in, in an audience. You put me in an audience with thousands of people. I would love to just talk and just talk about the things that are that I'm passionate about. I really enjoy that. I really like connecting with an audience. I think for me, those are the things that, you know, where I can make a good impact. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I have, I certainly have weaknesses, um, uh, in terms of, you know, groups and, you know, being able to, uh, interact in a group setting. I think that is one of my weaknesses. I often talk too fast, which I'm probably doing right now on the podcast, but it's all good. I'm a fast uh, talker too. So it's comfortable for me. So. <laughs> that's great. No. So, I mean, no, seriously, I mean, that's, I think that's what it comes down to. It comes down to just doing an introspective review of yourself and how often do we do that? How often do we sit back and take a step back and be like, okay, well, what is it that I'm good at? Or what is it that I can improve? And, you know, and trying to hone in on those skills, you know, many of us don't do that. I think that's another crucial part about leadership, you know, mm -hmm. understanding oneself, understanding thyself, right? Like, I think, you know, you can only be a good leader if you know who you are, you know what you bring to the table, you know what your strengths are. Those who don't do that or don't have good, uh, you know, emotional intelligence from that perspective often cannot lead, you know, effectively. Yep. So I think uh, that was very eye-opening for me. And, you know, I, I would consider myself, you know, more of a, a communicator. I think that's where my strength lies. Yeah, yeah. In studies, it's been shown that leaders who are effective communicators um, are uh, are better, but they're also, they also are self-aware. They understand themselves, understand their strengths. And the emotional intelligence really comes in when they understand the strengths of their team. So they know where their weaknesses lie and they help build up a team around them. Uh, and it is powerful to watch those teams thrive. So go from like surviving or kind of in that area to thriving. It is, there's nothing like it. Um, so yeah, you highlighted some major things there. So self-awareness being a number one predictor of a healthy leader. Uh, and number two, are they emotionally intelligent? Do they understand who's on their team and how to build them up? Because that's true imp impact and influence. So yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, think that's, I think that's so important because, you know, you read about, you know, even you read these stories about like, you no know, Bill Gates and all these amazing CEOs, um, Tim Cook, you know, at Apple and, you know, how they hire smart people around them. You know what I mean? They do it because they're not good at everything, right? They need people who they need people to fill in the weaknesses of their own, you know? So, you know, when there are people around them that are able to do it, then that team just becomes that much more powerful, right? When, you know, people are firing on all different cylinders. Um, so, you know, just so important to know your own shortcomings, how you can, augment your team by bringing those people in around you because that's that's a real team right a team isn't when everyone's just the same everyone brings the same thing they go it's who can bring different things different assets to the table in a way that is cohesive and where everyone is working together towards you know the common goal that you guys set as a team so yeah. absolutely agree yeah absolutely well this has been amazing like i said i'm going to contact you and get in touch with you about ai and some other topics i think so i appreciate your time so where can people find you 
They can find me on Twitter. Awan Rad is my Twitter handle, A-W-A-N-R-A-D. My you know YouTube page is MedEdPage, M-E-D-E-D-P-A-G-E, all one word. Instagram, Omar Awan, M-D. Um, I'm all over it. Just Google me and you'll see it. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Becky, for having me. I really much appreciate it. Absolutely. And thanks for joining us on this episode of The Leadership Pulse.